Hello and welcome to What's the BPM? This is a podcast dedicated to the history of Australian dance music. We will be chatting to the DJs, promoters and club owners who have been instrumental in growing this scene. From warehouse events to the major festivals we have today. So strap yourself in, subscribe to the channel and there'll be more episodes dropping in the near future. You're in tune to 1FM, right station. Come now! Hi, this is Pete Tong with tonight's Essential Mix, kick-starting 1998 with the versatile and numerous talents of Phil Perry. As tour support jock for Left Field, Massive Attack and Faithless, Phil has DJed the world over. And this year sees Phil touring again, this time to promote his new Gorilla Mix CD he's just produced. So we thought that it would be suitable that Phil should pop in and pay us a visit. We'll never get a chance to see him otherwise. So here he is. Enjoy the next couple of hours. Tonight's Essential Mixer is Phil Perry. Yes, yes, yes. Welcome back to another episode of What's the BPM? This show's a real special one. I'm breaking my own rules here. I was only going to do season one with all of the Brisbane DJs, but I got the opportunity to speak to one of the true originators or pioneers of the UK house scene, DJ Phil Perry owner of Full Circle Nightclub, you know, massive DJ back in the day. And like I said, one of the true pioneers and uh, got the opportunity to sit down and have a chat with him. So I was never going to turn it down. I thought I'd add a little bit of context to how I know Phil, because Phil is originally from London, but he now lives in um, Brisbane. I think it was probably around 2009, 2010. I'm coaching at a Thai boxing gym in Redcliffe. Every night that I'm coaching there, I'm, I'm, I'm giving these, uh, these young guys from Redcliffe oh, and, and older guys that, you know, we used to have pack classes back then. I'm giving them like a, a music history lesson. Like every week I'm playing, uh, you know, things like Sasha and Digweed, Northern Exposure, Paul Oakenfold, Goa Mix, like live old sets from the 90s and 2000s. Like I'm always playing them really good music. I, I, I never got any complaints, but I'm sure I'm sure a few of them were questioning my taste. And um, I met this guy called Phil, like an older guy who was coming along just training to, to keep fit. And one night I've got the music pumping away and we're doing, going through the session. And when the uh, class finished, Phil comes over to me and says, oh, mate, you, you seem like you really love that, that old UK house music. And I was like, yeah, mate, you know, I've been obsessed with it since the late 90s, really. And he said, oh, you know, I used to do a bit of DJing as well. And I'm like, oh, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, here we go. Sure you have, mate. And uh, he goes, yeah, I used to play at loads of clubs all over, you know. I've still got loads of records and all the rest of it. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I said, what's your, what's your last name? He goes, that's oh, Perry, Phil Perry my brain started calculating like rapidly, like putting like a jigsaw puzzle together in my mind. And I started remembering reading Phil Perry's name in mix mag and music magazine and full circles popping into my head. And then bang, it hit me. I was like, wow, this is Phil Perry stood right in front of me. Like we were already pretty good mates at the gym, but after every session we would hang around and he'd, tell me old stories about his uh, DJing career. And yeah, he's just a man with, that's had such a great career with so many cool stories. Um, it was only after the podcast finished, I realized that we didn't cover half of the things that we'd, we'd written down. So I just thought I'd add that to the story. So you understand how 
the the story of me meeting Phil was pretty cool in itself. So um, enjoy this one with one of the true pioneers of the UK scene, DJ Phil Perry. Phil Perry, welcome to the podcast. Lovely. Thanks for having me here, Steve. That's good, mate. Thanks heaps for coming over. We've got a lot to um, talk about. Let's start back at the beginning. I mean, you, you live in Australia now, but obviously you grew up in the UK. Like, where was you born? Always from London? Yeah, West London, mate. Come from West London, Hounslow. London Borough of Hounslow. Or Hounslow. Hounslow. <laughs> would you say you come from a musical family? Um, yeah, I would say I come from a musical family. My, uh, say my sister... Uh, was an original mod in the 60s. I've got a brother. So I'm the youngest of three, just to give you a perspective. My oldest sister was a mod, along with my brother-in-law. My brother was always into blues. He played the guitar. And in actual fact, my brother's got quite an extensive collection of guitars, and he's taught all his kids to play guitars as well. So, yeah, we come from a pretty musical family. Well, I'm probably the one who can't play a musical instrument. Dex with my instrument. What's a mod? Mod is uh, obviously, you know, some of you are aware of the youth cultures that have happened throughout the history of, you know, British youth movements. That was one of the ones in the 60s. You had the mods and the rockers, you know, the rockers used to ride around in their motorbikes with a greasy sort of leather jackets and greasy air. And the, the mods would wear their Italian suits, ride around in their Vespa and their Lamberetta scooters with the big mirrors on it. You know, uh, any Australians who may not know the film Quadrophenia, they, they were mods. And that youth culture existed in the sort of uh, early to late 60s. So, yeah, it's sort of modernist, basically. So, and the music that the mods were into was always stuff like, you know, Stax, Motown, uh, you know, Jimmy Smith, uh, Jack McDuff on the sort of jazz side of things. So, yeah, that's where I get my influences from, is from my sort of brother and my sister. So you're the youngest of three? Youngest of three, yep. So your musical interests were really sort of more the black music. Around the mid-70s, you started buying records, just from local record shops? Yeah, yeah, there was um, a couple of quite good record shops in Hounslow because uh, Hounslow was actually sort of quite an epicentre for music many years ago. Uh, yeah, I recall my sister saw Stevie Wonder play there when he was known as Little Stevie Wonder when he was about 16 or 17 at a place called the Casino in Hounslow. So it's always had a, a rich musical history. So, and you'd have good record shops around there. And there was that one particular record, you know, memory, long distant memory, but I can't remember what it's, it was called. Um, but they they were good. And there was like one of the old fashioned record shops where they had listening booths. So they'd put the record on, you go into the listening booth and listen and go, yeah, I like that and buy it. Wow. So you went into a, a different room and they played the record for you. Well, no, the actual, they were like, you know, you know like the, in films, you get like those phone box sort of canopies. Yeah. I yeah. said it was, like, it was like one of those, but with speakers inside it. So you'd go in and stand there and they'd have like, you know, six or seven or eight built along one wall. Geez, you feel pretty pressured to buy it. <laughs> yeah, luckily, yeah, I mean, it was you was on the other side of the counter with the booze, and the guy was, if you didn't like it, you just go, ah, I like that one, mate. Awesome. So, around 1977 to 78, you started DJing. How did that come about? Um, I say I started working at British Airways, and um, one of the guys that I worked in the workshop with, uh, John Robotham, his name just came back to me there for some reason or other. He used to run a mobile disco. Uh, and he was also into the sort of black side of music side of things anyway. 
and because you know we got talking about music this that and the other and sort of you know realized that we had a a common thread and he was like oh well why don't you come and sort of you know come down and give me a hand on saturday he was like yeah okay yeah i'd love to so i took a, yeah in the old days you used to carry your records around in like an old crate you know you'd have beers and stuff in so like you know the old schweppes mini bottle crates so yeah. you'd have all your records in those but way before record bags and such niceties were invented um so yeah go down and do some stuff with him on a saturday and it got more and more and more then so basically we used to do it between us so yeah we used to do mobiles over in a club uh or a club pub club called the dolphin and jesters in kingston so we used to do that on a saturday nights but yeah so that was my introduction to dj uh the dolphin is that where they had the uh, famous Lenny McLean as the doorman. That's right. Yeah, the club was actually owned by I can't remember his remember his first name John something like the owner Story and other clubs in London. Is sort of basically a bit of an under underworld figure in London, and his right hand man was Lenny McLean. And I remember once um, on the door, the Scots Guards were in town because there used to be a barracks in Kingston, the Army Barracks, and the Scots Guards were based there on their rotation. And this uh, very drunk Scots guard came up one one evening outside the door, pissed as a rat, demanding that he should be let in. And Lenny McLean was like, no, nah, sorry, mate, you ain't coming in tonight. For those of you who've heard Lenny McLean, the film Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels is in that. Yeah. Uh, but his gruff voice said, no, nah, Jock, you're not coming in tonight. It's like, ah, what are you going to do about it, you? Yeah, beep, beep, lump. And he's like, no, nah, Jock, obviously, go home. You've had a bit too much to drink. So old Jock wouldn't take no for an answer. So Jock's gone to have a little swing at Lenny McLean, and Lenny McLean's just hit him with one punch, square in the face. Basically, the guy flew out from the door, ended up in the middle of the road. Basically, a flat nose and eight teeth missing, four at the top and four at the bottom, gone completely. One punch. He was the absolute monster. It was obviously yeah, he was a bare knuckle champion as well. Yeah, for it for the listeners, if you don't know um, who Lenny is, um, do a search on YouTube. He was a he was the governor, wasn't he? The governor, the governor. Yeah. He was just a bare knuckle boxer, just an animal. <laughs> but he ended up becoming um, quite a famous actor in the end, didn't he? But he, yeah, Lock, Stock and Two yeah. Guy Ritchie film, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. Yeah, yeah, it's um, that's a great movie. Like we've been through your story um, before we started recording. There's just there's so there's so many um awesome stories to tell but your early djing career you you said you were playing at the soul weekenders the, the uk had a massive soul scene back then yeah there's always so there's always been a strong black music scene in the uk anyway yeah which i think stems from sort of you know, the rock and roll years going through the mod years and obviously you had a bit of a hiatus during the hippie years <laughs> um yeah started off uh, because obviously yeah, I had a, a quite an extensive record collection at that time and friends would ask you to do their parties and stuff and you know sometimes as we got older they'd have uh, you know hire a club and have a party there and I remember sort of DJing in uh, a club and the owners went yeah it was fantastic can you come and do it for us and so I ended up sort of DJing in those clubs and there then eventually uh put on to the Bournemouth Soul Weekender by Bob Masters uh, a long time friend of mine and I did the Bournemouth Soul Weekender for quite an expensive time up until the sort of like, yeah, the house revolution. And once I started, I played for the last Bournemouth Soul Weekender I did, I played house music. And basically, needless to say, I was never asked back to do the, <laughs> the Bournemouth Soul Weekender. 
and if Bob's listening to this, I can understand that one, Bob. Yeah. So, so house music had started sort of like infiltrating the the record shops, mostly sort of like a US sound. Would you say? Um. Yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously, yeah. House music originated in Chicago, anyway. Uh, yeah, the early days of sort of Frankie Knuckles obviously comes from a club called the Warehouse in Chicago, so hence why it's named uh, House Music. Um, yeah, it had always been there, you know I mean, but uh, you know, 86, 85, I think it's one of the earliest house records. It was, yeah, it was about 86, maybe before that. So it always been there, but it was um, once it was paired with the uh, the party favorite known as Ecstasy, that's when the whole thing exploded. Like, I'm trying to think from a DJ's perspective, did you just start to notice that there was more and more people coming to the gigs, dancing for longer, drinking water? and Yeah, you, you saw a steady increase in it, but then you know, once it started to become popular, it was popularised by, uh, you know, you get those early evening news programmes on and there was a thing in the sun newspaper at the time about, you know, you can buy your Acid House T-shirt, this whole new great big trend and uh, from that point, you know, that's where it, it really exploded across the country. Yeah, you know, everybody got in and just went, I'm having some of this. And that's when the whole party, our whole country went just party crazy and everybody was out every weekend, every night and just partying. I should imagine quite a few people lost their jobs. Will you quit your job at British Airways and basically went full-time DJing from then on? didn't you that's right yeah yeah i got to a point it was like yeah i'm do, doing shift work and it was like oh yeah i'll be out djing until god knows what time in the morning and go straight from there to work and then do like an early shift from six till two sort of go home have a bit of sleep and go out and dj again that night and do the sound said eventually it got it got too much i just went no something's got to go and it's like well it's a job the job's got to go is that around the time that you you got a manager, like you had, you had someone um, managing your gigs, and not a manager as such. It was my partner at the time, Fiona Crawford. She used to do a lot of my bookings for me. Um, then she ended up working for a DJ agency called DJs Unlimited. Um, so basically, then it was all done through that. And um, but also, yeah, over the years, I built up uh, rapports with different promoters in sort of other countries and stuff. So you know, yeah, they would call me direct, and I'd go and you know just do it with them. You've been to Ibiza loads of times but we were chatting before we um started recording you got a pretty cool story about a trip to ibiza in 1981 like i, I would have been three i think <laughs> three years old. yeah it was 81 82 i think yeah, I mean, yeah. it was 40 like something years ago um yeah we, we went there it was a friend of mine um myself and ian we went there and uh so we looked a little bit different from the normal sort of people going there we, you know, we had a bit of a sort of rockabilly edge without being rockabillies and we got talking to these two girls in Ibiza town. Like, we didn't know who they were. And we sort of, you know, saying, yeah, you know, don't really, don't really want to go to San Antonio because it's pretty plot there, you know, full of pissed up Brits. And it's like, no, avoid that one. And they said, well, you know, look, come to this place. And it's like, well, how do we get in? And went, now, yeah, look, take these tickets. We'll meet you there tonight. It's like, yeah, great. So we got there and this club was cool. Uh, so we went in there. Uh, I think in the time it was George Michael, Andrew Ridgely and a few other sort of celebs in there. And it transpired that the two girls that we were talking to were Pepsi and Shirley. So basically, uh, they gave us the tickets to get into Coup. And Coup, which is obviously now, or it changed its name to Privilege. But in those days, Coup was all open air. There was no roof on any of the clubs because Spain wasn't part of the EEC then. So they weren't governed by sort of, you know, ridiculous rules that the EEC place on businesses and stuff. So, so Pepsi and Shirley... 
they they worked for George Michael. They were backing singers for one. Okay, wow. So he, that was just like a real lucky. Yeah, yeah, just to, to just a luck of the draw up to be in the right place at the right time. It was me and a friend called Ian Trantel. So back to um, your DJ career around 1987, 88, you were telling me that record shops were just popping up and there were so many great record shops around London, uh, like Vinyl Zone, My Price, was it Quaff? Quaff, Quaff, Quaff Records. Records, Reckless Records. Like, and you're only DJing now, you're not working. So your week is just spent cruising around listening to records and buying new music? Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was fantastic, mate. Uh, funnily enough, Roy Roy the Roach is you know, he's a very well-known DJ and producer in the UK who owned Quaff Records. Recently put a picture up of uh, of the back of the shop. Basically, it's like, you know, like a record rack and the boxes that the records that records used to come in with all the DJ's names on the front of the box. And, like, yeah, you know, it's like a DJ's roll of honour wall. Uh, and Roy posted that last week, actually, on Facebook. And, yeah, you know, like, you've got Oak and Fold, everybody else, you name it, everybody's there. And it's like, oh, look, there's my box there. Oh, so if he would... They would put, save them for, yeah. yeah. So, basically, all the US imports would come in. They would know but what year or your style. Yeah. And they would put those away for you. So, like, sometimes you'd, you know, if there's only 10... 20 of those copies that had come in and Roy had managed to snaffle them, you know, we'd all get one of each in those boxes. So we, uh, we were basically armed up by Roy. Just sorted. Yeah. It's a great photograph. I've, I've, I've pulled Send it over it. to I'll, you. I'll whack it on the Instagram. Yeah. So what's some of the clubs you were, you were DJing at around that time, 87 to 88, you started your own Sunday afternoon party at Queen's? Yeah, Queen's. Queen's on the Queen Mother Reservoir up in Colnbrook at the back of Heathrow Airport. That's where basically Full Circle was as well. That was at the back of the airport, but not on the reservoir. Uh, yeah, we started that in, I think it was October 19, uh, 1987. And that run through all the way to 1990. Then 1990 to 97, we did Full Circle. But Queens was you know, it was it was fantastic. It was just you know, a proper proper decadent vibe. Close the doors, smoke machines, strobes, off we go. So that's used to kick off around lunchtime. Yeah, yeah. We used to open at midday. Obviously, in those days, the you were governed by the old licensing laws in the UK. You know, in the old days, pubs or clubs were on a Sunday were only allowed to open at 11 o'clock and they had to close at four o'clock. So basically we had to do it between those hours. I was reading online somewhere that you had to like give everyone a voucher for like chips. Or no, something. that was, that was full circle. We, oh, we, okay. that was the next club after Queens. Once we finished Queens in 1990, we started um, full circle in 1990. And it was basically on the old A4, which is the old coaching route between London and Bath. And because that pub, uh, is on the old co coaching route. It had an anomaly on its license, which you know it means it wasn't governed by the old licensing laws that used to be in the UK at that time. You know, like on a Sunday, pub could open at eleven, have to close at four. But they uh, had a, a, an anomaly on their license because it was an old coaching in years and years, like you know, hundreds of years ago, that stated that basically they could stay open and sell alcohol as long as they were selling hot food or providing hot food. So the way around that, we used to have these vouchers printed so everybody that came in basically got one of these vouchers no one's eaten no yeah, one. no no one was eating <laughs> no, no, yeah I, 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 probably some people you know i mean if eating chips yeah yeah but oh uh, yeah so that was a way around the law in then days that we could you know keep yeah. keep going Plenty. and that's how we used to do it and we never got touched once 
sorry, jumping back to Queens, Queens is where you sort of really notice the explosion of like, you know, punters coming through the door. You got any cool sort of memorable stories or moments you can tell us about Queens? <laughs> Funny enough, come back to the Wham thing. There's a friend of mine called Craig Walsh, who's a DJ. Um, basically, his sister's Nina Walsh, who used to be or production partner of Andrew Weatherall. Legend. Yeah. yeah. And um, we one afternoon was sitting there in Queens. Yeah, it was really busy. And lo and behold, who walks in and sits down over in one corner? Andrew Ridgely from Wham. I think he had just left Wham by then, but he'd taken up a career as a racing driver or you know, doing racing cars. And what had happened was on his first day and he crashed the car and Craig Walsh completely off his cake, sort of bumbled past Andrew Ridgely and going, all right, mate, crashed any cars today. <laughs> but that didn't go down too well. No, it didn't. It was sort of needless to say, he didn't, he didn't hang around too much longer. Uh, Obviously yeah. thought this club's full of ruffians. I'm not yeah, staying here. Yeah, yeah. So in Queens, what sort of music were you playing there? Would you... When we first started, it was uh, there. There's always been a club over that side of London, you know, going back to the sort of early or mid '70s, called the Belvedere, which was you know DJ by its famous old soul DJ Chris Brown and the sort of various guests that they used to have there on a weekly basis. That closed down, and basically, you know, it's like what are we going to do now? We still need a club. You know, it was almost like an institution. Our church going out on a Sunday afternoon to a club. So I was like, right, okay. A friend of mine, Yvonne, said, I've got this place up on the reservoir called Queens. On the Queen, hence it's called Queens because it's on the Queen Mother Reservoir at the back of either airport. And she said, yeah, they're quite willing to give it to you on a Sunday. I was like, oh, lovely. So we got that, sorted that all out, uh, started doing it. Oh, you know, we started doing that 87. We were sort of playing a mixture of sort of soul, hip hop, house and stuff like that. Yeah, it was probably getting sort of, you know, anywhere between 75, 100, 110 people, you know, for the first sort of month or so. Then all of a sudden, now I think there was some big rave somewhere, one of the big first big raves to be put on around the sort of London Orbital area. Then, you know, gone from the previous Sunday, it was 100 people there at the most. And <laughs> the following Sunday, about 700 people and about another thousand trying to get in. And that was it. It just sealed that, sealed it. It's like, you know, so every week from then on, it was, you know, it was full house and turning people away. You know, you'd have people trying to get in through the fire exits or trying to get in through the, yeah, you know, the toilet doors and the windows. And bearing in mind, the club was upstairs, and below the club was the actual reservoir sailing club. And you used to have to share the same facilities as like the toilet. So if you wanted a wee, you'd have to go downstairs and go into the toilet. So you'd have all these people completely cake-old and all these people from the sailing club in their wetsuits sort of <laughs> going, what the fuck's going on here? All these people gurning for England. Oh, wicked. And would you have guest DJs? play at that um oh man yeah you do you, you i'll send you some of we had you name them we had them there we had alfredo weatherall farley oh, i mean it's just so long ago now i can't remember but if i look at the flyers everybody played at queens and at full circle a lot of it alfredo from um amnesia and you know ibiza yeah he was playing for us in 1989 1990 Weatherall was playing there, Harvey, you name it, they're, they're all playing there. Who who was a standout from back then? Um, I don't know, I can't remember because we was two off our cake. You saw <laughs> if it was good. Yeah, everything sounded amazing. <laughs> everything sounded amazing, yeah. yeah. 
So then moving on to full circle, like full circle is literally a piece of like history. Like you get, do a Google search, you can find forums where they're talking about it. It's like people have got such fond memories of it. Like how did full circle start and who come up with the name full circle? Cause it's quite, um, we came up with me and Fiona came up with the name full circle because at the time it was like, it was that little bit of uh a blipping, not blipping house music, but where all sort of like the Happy Mondays thing started to come in and, you know, that sort of down-tempo Manchester vibe and this, that. The people were starting to get into that. And um, basically, we've, you know, we finished uh, Queens because basically the guy that uh, used to run Queens, the nightclub part of it, the lease was over and the sailing club wanted it back, which I'm not surprised, really. Uh, so we started Full Circle. I'll, I'll give you a story quickly. Yeah, There's yeah. a friend of mine called Martin Gore who's no longer with us. Yeah, I mean, bless him. Rest in peace, Martin. Who got us the venue. It basically, it was it was a, a an old pub on the uh, A4 coaching road, back of Heathrow. No residential whatsoever near it. It basically, it was, a, it was a gay pub. And the guy that owned it allowed us to come in there and do it. And he was like, yep, yeah, fine. No, one, no worries. I'll, and I said to him, this is going to be the first date. Can you make sure that you've got plenty of alcohol? You have plenty of this, that, and that. I said, because I said, how much do you normally sell? He went, oh, we normally do this, you know, in a week. I went, you'll do twice that on a Sunday. He was like, yeah, right, okay. So lo and behold, first Sunday comes, absolutely jam-packed to the rafters. All the alcohols run out within about 40 oh, no. minutes. And he, they're having to go up. He, had, he owned another pub somewhere, so he's having to go to this other pub and get it over. It got to a point there was like, you know, the stuff that had been on the top shelf gathering dust for like donkey's years, like creme de menthe. I remember Dean Thatcher going, what's that out there? <laughs> I'll have a pint of that. <laughs> and like Dean having a pint of creme de menthe with ice cubes in it. Oh, yeah. And like the whole ethos, yeah, when, if, if looking back on the original letter that we sent out to everybody on our mailing list, it was like, you know, as I going back to what we said about it, it was going through that sort of down tempo Manchester vibe. We thought, well, okay, we, we need to move with the times. This is what we're going to do. So we sent out a letter to him saying, yeah, it's going to be a sort of relaxed, chilled atmosphere. Yeah, you know, some nice down tempo music, ball games, this, that, and the other. So yeah, you know, and just sort of like more like you know, <laughs> got the first time it was me, Terry Farley, and Stuart Patterson, and we sort of started for the first half an hour playing some sort of down tempo stuff. Farley's looks at me gone. Can we play some house music? I went, yeah, fuck it, why not? And that was it. You know, never looked back. The ball games never got used. So I don't know where they ended up. Off. I think they just end up getting thrown at people. But uh, after that, that was it. So the whole down tempo, you know, Manchester sort of vibe, not Manchester vibe, but yeah, the whole sort of vibe lasted all of forty-five minutes, and it's just that was it. It just went back to let's have it house. And that's it. Yeah, and that's what happened. And, and, and that was it. And that's what sealed it. It's, it. it's destiny, really, I suppose. So every Sunday you're at full circle, but you're DJing all over the country, done a couple of world tours at that point. You played. Yeah, yeah. I did the ID magazine world tour where I played in Australia. It was, I think it was about 89, 1990 at the Darling Harbour Exhibition Centre. It was me with, along with Kid Bachelor from the UK. Uh, local DJs, I think it was John Ferris, Pee Wee Ferris, Ming Darcy, and that was 25,000 people in the old, what was the old Darling Harbour Exhibition Centre. And like they had a full-on like fairground, a jumpy castle and everything in the middle of it and this, that and the other. Must have been unreal. Yeah, 
You're planet ministry of sound around that time, is that right? Uh, yeah, when ministry opened, uh, there used to be a night called Open on a Friday, which was more of a sort of d- the darker edge rather than a sort of like, yeah, the garagey type edge, which is on Saturdays. Uh, I used to play there. It was run by a guy called Jim Masters and uh, Lynn Cosgrove. So he used to DJ there on most sort of Friday nights for quite a long time. That, like from what I've heard, that place had just an amazing sound system even back then. Oh, yeah. It was, it was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it was probably the best sound system in the United Kingdom. I remember <laughs> digressing again. Got a story about that. Is um, we did a full circle all day out down in East Grinstead in this beautiful old mansion house where we used to do them every sort of year on bank holidays, and um, that finished at around about midnight. And obviously everybody's like, well, "What are we going to do now?" So fortunate enough, Jim Masters and Lynn Cosgrove. Lynn used to be the general manager of um, ministry, and Jim was a promotion manager. Lynn's gone, I've got the keys to the ministry. And Jim's gone, I've got the keys to, keys to turn the beer machines on. And luckily at the party was Chris, the sound man, who also, bless him, RIP, Chris, was at the altar. So we've all jumped on the coach. We've all gone to the ministry. There's probably about 80 of us. Gone through the back door. Lynn's opened it all up, switched the lights on. Chris has fired up the sound system. Uh, and there was me, Carl Craig, Richie Halton, and somebody else DJ and it was like our own private ministry party basically obviously the bars weren't open but they had beer machines so like Lynn's turned all them on got a load of money gone out so we got beer and there was a a gentleman there called Dr Chris or Professor Chris Rabbit that used to manufacture his own you know what? yeah yeah Yeah. and um basically everybody's on that and that was it we just we was in the ministry till about 10 o'clock that morning having our own party and I remember uh Richie all DJ and Richie all (laughs) in She's looked at me, gone, Bill. He goes, I can't, I can hardly see the decks anymore. <laughs> he goes, you're gonna have to take over. I went, no chance, Richie. I can't even see the fucking decks. <laughs> and I remember Johnny Walker, like you know, part of the the famous Ibiza, yeah, uh, Oakenfold team, yeah, Oakenfold, yeah. Fungy, and all those. Johnny's actually inside the speaker in the ministry of the big bass bin. Johnny's up inside the actual bass bin. Oh my God, he's poor. I'm surprised ears. he sort of didn't rattle his brain or he's got his permanently deaf after that. But that was just anyway, digressing. That was like we had our own private afters party in the oh, ministry. Unreal. Legendary. If Jim and uh, Lynn, if you're listening, thanks. That was a one hell of a night. No one got in trouble for that? No, no one got in trouble because Lynn was the general manager. Let's talk about Ibiza for a bit. You just jogged my memory talking about um, Nikki Holloway. 1988. You were DJing in Ibiza. You were playing in Coo, Amnesia, Summum, Summum, yeah, it's Paradise. I think we also did a couple of nights in Pacha. Yeah, it was a guy called uh, Tommy Mack that sort of organised uh, a weekend, uh, sorry, a weekend, a week uh, party out there. So, like, every night we was DJing at different clubs. What would you have um, said was the highlight for you there, like club-wise? In them days, it was, you know, when we first went there, the clubs didn't have any roo- roofs on them, especially Amnesia and Coup. And that was the beauty of it. You know what I mean? It's that, that sense of that freedom. You could look up at the stars while you're dancing. You know, you could see Ibiza Town in the distance. Yeah, I remember one night, I think it was Pippi or it was either Cesar, who were the resident DJs at Coup, playing French Kiss, Dill Lewis. And there was a big thunderstorm going off over Ibiza Town in the distance. You could see it. And it just seemed to add that, just seemed to add a magic to you know, it, 
French Kiss being played at that time, it just seemed to elevate that record to sort of, you know, wow. And it just created a vibe that was just like unmatched that I've ever felt before. What an experience. Man, you're so lucky. Like, I mean, I went to Ibiza in 98 and I thought that was just out of this world. I went back again, I think, in 2006 or seven. I can't remember, but it had gone total VIP culture by then. But I've read online that 1998 was like a really bad year, but it was just unreal for me. So I'm so jealous of you guys that got to experience it back in those early days because all the documentaries I've seen, it, like you just said there, the magic, it's a magical Oh, it was. It, magical was, it place, was magical right? in those times. Yeah. It really was. Brushing over your uh, productions, you made loads of records under loads of different aliases. Why would you, why wouldn't you just stick with your one name? Um, I don't know. It's just, just a thing to do then, I suppose. I mean, it was just like, yeah, let's put it under that name. Let's think of a name. Because you know, sometimes you'd, you'd be uh, producing with different people. Like, you know, I'd do stuff with Clive Henry from like Peace Division or I'd be doing stuff with Stacey Tuff. So they would be the names that we would use if I was doing work with them. You know, so or work on my own or with other people. So you know, because it it was a, it was a joint effort. It wasn't a you know. So it's rather than going you know, Tough and Perry and Henry and Perry. It was just yeah. like we'll call ourselves that. So where would you make those records? Like those studios in London or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Quite a few friends of ours had studios. I ended up buying sort of some studio gear. Basically, I sold it onto a mate of mine. We sort of. Did recording in that, because he installed it in, up in the, like, a roof attic that he had. Uh, but, yeah, different studios in London. Uh, I did stuff for Skunk Records, for Cowboy Records, quite a few different labels. I had my own label as well. What was your own label? Full Circle Productions. Full Circle, oh, yeah. Younger listeners listening now think of um, producing records with just a computer and, you know, all the, like, software. But back in the day, it was a process, wasn't it? Like, what's this? What was the, the average process to making a house track back in the 80s oh, or 90s? Oh, Jesus. It was like you, you, nothing was, you know, it was recording on recording onto tape, you know, proper real real tape recorder, big studio Tascam tape. Yeah, you know, and you'd have to run a SMPT code on the tape first so everything was synchronized on it. You know, computer programming was slow and laborious. And if you wanted to sample anything, you have to use an old Akai 900 or, you know, I think... By the time it finishes, that guy two thousand samplers, and that was painful to do. You know, it would take a sometimes take you know two three hours just to get a sample right into the right pitch and to you know do everything to it. Whereas now it's just a piece of piss. Yeah, you just <laughs> a few clicks on the mouse. A few clicks then. on the mouse, and that's it. You know, you'd have uh, worked in some studios where had like a fifty six track desk, automated desk, and everything. All the equipment was outboard. It was all in racks. So like your reverbs, delays, and effects units were all in a rack and so you'd have to assign them into the desk and everything else where it used to make probably take us two days to make a track three days if i had had that technology then i could have probably done that in about two hours no way like where would you get the vinyls pressed would they get sent to a label or would you get them like test uh yeah no a lot of the time we was doing stuff for labels anyway yep. so they, i mean they'd, they'd book all the studios for you just go in take your engineer in there uh then basically once it's done and dusted you go take it to a uh, a cutting studio and get it sort of mastered in a mastering studio there was there any like um cutting studios that you would always attend yeah there was used to be one i can't remember what it's called now it's um just off of fulham road it was like big old george who used to do all our mastering for us because i've heard the uh 
the drum and bass guys all used to go to the same place and I reckon it when you you went in there on like a Saturday morning and it was just like full of the who's who of DJs all just puffing on joints, waiting for their like waiting for their dub plates to get cut for the weekend. Yeah, and yeah it must have been. Uh, yeah, we used to go. George used to do all hours for us. I can't remember his second name. Bless him. You know what I mean, big old George, big old bear, good lad. He had a good ear as well. So yeah, he used to do all our mastering for us. Then. Um, Obviously, the masters would get sent off to the pressing plant, which normally used to be a big one in London. It used to be PR Records in Wimbledon. Then you get, you know, stamp out a couple of test pressings for you to have a listen to and approve. You go, yeah, they're great. But you know, you record companies normally get sort of like 10, 15 test pressings done. So you'd then they could give them out to DJs, yeah, like yeah. the tastemaker DJs to play. Then the DJs would play them uh, and try and generate a buzz on it. You got any of them like laying around anywhere? I've got hundreds of them. Oh, I used to have hundreds, but I sold them all records, didn't I? To Luke and Chantel. Hey, when was that? Uh, about five years ago. Ah, oh, so pretty recently. Yeah. Well, no, maybe a bit longer, actually. Sorry, we've got a little bit sidetracked there, but going back to full circle, full circle is just pumping every, uh, every weekend. Like I've read online, you've had uh, pretty much every famous DJ there is, obviously. Not the not the super young guys, but m- most of the big name DJs that are still going today, you had play at Full Circle. Like who's who's some of the big names you you used to have at Full Circle regularly? Obviously, Weber was Andrew Weber was quite a regular there because he lived just down the road. Farley, people like that. Yeah, you know, the, the British DJs were predominantly regular. Yeah, you know, the American DJs we had on a sort of semi regular basis: Tony Humphreys, Danny Tanaglia, uh, DJ Pierre, Robert Hood. Derek May, Kevin Saunderson, Derek Carter, Laurent Garnier, Carl Cox, Paul Oakenfold. You basically name any DJ. Sasha Digweed. Sasha. Yeah. Not Digweed. No, I didn't have John Dig. Yeah, DJ now. Had Sasha there. What sort of era would that have been? Like when you had Sasha? I'm a huge that was Sasha. About 94, 95, I think. So, what sort of stuff was Sasha playing around that time? He was playing sort of like housey sort of, well, yeah, going into that sort of progressively what they what they termed progressive, but it's just basically British the British take on house music. Got any cool stories to tell us about Full Circle? Oh Jesus, I don't know where to start. Loads. What oh, about the, the what about the Tenanglia one? Uh, yeah, I Tenanglia play. Um, basically, yeah, I, I, I don't think he knew what was in store. He sort of came in there, played. Place just absolutely erupted, and he he just came out again. That was absolutely amazing. You know, can I play again next week? It was like, oh, I'll let me find out because I've got Darren Emerson from Underworld playing next week. So I rang Darren. And he, he said, "Look, you know, do you mind if I can cancel you, but I'll give you another couple of extra gigs?" And he was like, "Yeah, no problem." So we had Tanaglia playing two weeks on the trot. Any other cool stories from Full Circle? Yeah, but it was a good one where we had Tony Humphreys playing once. Um, I was up in the booth, sort of, you know, the booth used to sit high above the dance floor and looking down while Tony's playing. I looked down to my left by the fire exit, Todd Terry standing there with his arms folded. If you looked across the other side, there was David Morales. Um, I think it was Kevin Saunderson and somebody, oh, DJ Pierre, I think it was. I think it was them. And they were there, like, he looked down and went, there's a who's who of American house DJs on the dance wow. floor at Full Circle listening to Tony Humphreys. Awesome. So Full Circle's run from 1990 to 97. Like, how was the music changing and how did you move with the times? Because the music got a lot faster, didn't it, through the 
towards the late 90s and uh yeah i remember being asked i can't remember it was either mixed mag or dj magazine which one it was they at the time it was sort of like you know the genres were starting to pop up oh do you play this or do you play this or do you play this now, i remember being asked you know what type of club would you classify your club as and i said to them well, i classify it as a music club i said well what do you mean i said well one week i could have tony humphreys playing a, a new york zanzibar set and the following week i could have richie halton playing playing a detroit techno set followed by a week later having josh wink uh, yeah. there, there are other people at dj you know richie halton josh wink those people were there as well uh it, and you know the following week it could be alfredo from ibiza so it, it was it was about music it wasn't about a genre or a particular style and, and i think that's where it's things started to go wrong as soon as people started to put labels on on different types of music because then you know you get your people go oh, i'm only into Balearic, or i'm only into hard house or i'm only into drum and bass or i'm only into this rather than just sort of like listening to the whole uh, so i said to him you know i'm a music club i'm not a club of any particular genre yeah because i've heard the old school like the old school like rave music was a bit of a mix of everything wasn't it like drum and bass house Hip-hop. yeah the, 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 the actual rave side of the culture was yeah and then it sort of just fragmented off into just all yeah. different genres uh, the, 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 the rave scene was it was running parallel most of the clubs you know the house clubs were underground then the sort of rave thing came out of the the explosion of the house music scene so the rave started to happen a little bit later and that run in parallel so I wasn't actually really on the rave scene I didn't really DJ at raves I mean I I think well it's not a rave I did the tribal gathering festival up in Luton that's probably the biggest thing I did in the UK but I was all I was all made mainly a club DJ yeah you're just a club guy yeah 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 yeah, you know, oh. playing good clubs, and yeah, I fortunate enough to play some of the best clubs in the world. I played Twilo, Sound Factory, New York. If I've played, you played, you played at Twilo. I played at Twilo. Yeah, me and Carl Cox. You it see- was actually on Carl Cox's birthday, and I remember I was supposed to be DJing for about three hours, and like third hour, no sign of Carl. It was it was actually his birthday that weekend. No sign of Carl. I was like, oh, I'll just keep going. I ended up playing for about five hours, I think, because he was sitting upstairs in the uh, in the VIP lounge drinking champagne with the owner. Oh, he did. He- then he finally rocked up. I was yeah. like. Off you go then it's my turn to go up there and drink champagne with the owner what time was, would have that have been like late 90s yes so i think that was late 90s so were you playing techno around there yeah i've got plates yeah i played a good techno set of twilight because i i've i've listened to a lot of your like old mixes and i think i might have even listened to a compilation cd which was live from a club in amsterdam yeah Matt, so in amsterdam and um it's it's banging techno yeah like it's groovy yeah i don't mind different uh, uh different sort of swerves as it was yeah it, it, I remember to sort of chatting with Weverall once it was yeah we, we both always used to sort of you know, if something we was playing everybody else started to do it then we'd head we'd, do we'd, something we different. used to say we're head for the hills yeah and we'd head for the hills and you know go off another way and that's what i did you know uh, to be honest I, I towards the end of it i did lose my way a little bit why why do you think i don't know i don't know probably just doing it for so long overcaning and... it i think yeah and you start to lose the sort of perspective a little bit let's talk about your essential mix for um pete tong how did that come about and um yeah talk us through how you put the mix together that came about um uh, i got a phone call i think it was from 
uh, Pete's management company. I was saying, yeah, Pete wants you to do a, um, a mix for the essential mix. It's like, yeah, great, lovely. And uh, I think his management company, well, no, the production company that was doing the mixes was run by an old, the old famous soul DJ and old radio DJ, Jeff Young. So it was all done through Jeff Young. Yeah, basically, I said, do whatever you like. So, so you went into their studio and recorded? No, no, I, 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 I can't remember where I did it. I can't remember where I did it. I think I did it at home. Oh, I used to have a, I, like most DJs at the time, like, you know, having a DAC machine was like, yes, you'd record yeah. everything onto a DAC machine you know, rather than just sort of, you know, with a DAC, DAC, DAC tape, you could record for like, you know, two, three hours on a DAC yeah. tape. So you could get one sort of, one continuous digital mix. I uh, did it at home. Uh, it's just, I just, you know, it, 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 for me, I did that mix to show this is what DJing's about. Because I started off with something completely different, sort of breakbeat stuff, moved from breakbeat into a bit of house, into a bit of techno, into house. And I took it on a journey. My whole point was to elevate the mix from like a, you know, a lower BPM and bring it up to, to show your versatility as a DJ. Yeah, That's why I did that mix. And, you know, a lot of people got it. But some people didn't get it. It's like, well, if you're listening to this now, that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to just show your vers versatility as a DJ. That's how a DJ should be. That you just don't play a linear set that starts at yeah. 122 and you finish at 122. That you can start at 80. There's a bit of technical now, so you can take it from 80 to 130 if you want to in a two-hour, three-hour set. So you're just like probably condensing a four- or five-hour set into – what, an hour and a half or two it hours? It was two hours, yeah, two, two hours. hour mix, yeah. Cool. Just trying to build it into, just to show, you know, to go, you know, you're not a one-trick pony that, you know, you can actually DJ from taking it there. And, that, you know, bearing in mind, that was the days of vinyl as well. So it was done on, like, two or three decks. No editing, just no, no editing, record nothing. and go for it. No, done on the first run. Wow. Can you remember what mixer in that year is? Technics yeah. decks, obviously. Yeah, Technics, yeah, Technics yeah, work 1210s. I trust the old 1210s. Yeah, bulletproof, eh? Just, yeah, yeah. They just keep going. Those ones I've got behind me, they're, they'd be 20 years old, never been serviced, still working. Yeah. Oh, they're, they're, <laughs> working fine, no drama. Oh, they're, 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 the, they're the guitar of the 20th century. Yeah. So, mate, full circle finished. You continued, you're running your own club night called Sounds of the Suburbs. SOS, yeah, that was in a place uh, over in Kingston which is a sort of uh, southwest London. We did that for two years. Um, that was all right, yeah, you know I mean, but the, the sort of vibe was starting to be lost. You know, the whole sort of acid house thing and the summer of love vibe was starting to wear down a little bit. Everybody was getting into the Charlie and everything else, so it's starting to sort of drop off. So I think we did that for two years until the actual guy that owned the club sort of basically sold it off and it closed down because they redeveloped the place. So, and That's, that run, we did that from what, 97 to about 2000, I think. And then, so you, you still continued DJing? Like when, when did you sort of, your DJing career kind of slow down? Started to slow down once I knew that my uh, mother and my son was pregnant and obviously, you know what I mean? Responsibilities. Yeah, traveling yeah. all around the world. It's like, you can't really do that. Yeah, you know, I could have done, but should have done. <laughs> but I didn't. Um, yeah, so it started, so probably 2005, 2006. You just got to, went sort of back to the normal society. No, 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 just still sort of, you know, DJing, doing bits and bobs. Yeah, and then back to normal society. Then I immigrated to Australia in 2008. 2008. 
And that's when I met you around that time. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And you're still DJing now, playing guest spots in Australia. Yeah, um, dude, it's a wonderful party up uh, a place called Billy Nudgel, which is just north of Byron Bay. They've been doing it for quite a few few years, and it's an incredible vibe. It's honest, I would say it's probably one of the best club nights on the east, east coast of Australia. True, when I say club night, I mean true club night. You've got a mixture of old, young, gay, straight, whatever. Everybody just gets the music, they dance. And they, they feel the music, they feel the vibe, and they dance from beginning to the end. Yeah. We were talking about it before. I was saying that, like, I'm a, getting a old and a bit jaded, but, like, you're a DJ that just gets it. You know, you were there from the start. You understand the whole purpose of the journey and, and playing good quality records. And I listen to so many DJs these days, and I just can tell they just don't get it. No, they don't. They, You've got to stick your neck out as a DJ. You know I mean, you can train a monkey out of DJ. Yeah, you know, easily train a monkey out of DJ. But you've also you you've got to entertain. That's your primary focus. But you've also got to educate. You've got to play them them records that they didn't think they were going to hear and go, oh, what's that? Yeah, you know, we had going back in the day. You'd play a record. It'd go over people's heads. Then, like two months later, you play it and they'd get it. Yeah. So, you know, when you used to buy records, you know, I'd buy records going, that's not going to work now, but there's something in that record I know, that I can feel, I can hear that that's going to be a big record, but it's not going to be a big record now. now one in particular, I always, it's Knights of the Jaguar, Rolando. Tune, yeah. Most DJs didn't buy it. It's just they didn't get it at the time. And I remember buying it, I mean, yeah, and I played it, and, you know, people going, what the fuck is that? Then that was it. Everybody and I, yeah, I had some some well known DJs went. Do you know what? Yeah, we're all mates. I've gone. I heard that about two months ago in Quaff, and I I knocked it back. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. And I went. Yeah, yeah. I, but I've done the same. Yeah, I mean, we've all done it. We've all done it at DJ. Yeah. Sometimes you miss that. You know, miss that one. Might not be in the right mood at the yeah. time when you're listening. Yeah, you know, so you've got to. You know, if any DJs are listening to this, it's like. You've got to have a musical history. You've got to know your music. You've got to feel your music. Yeah, you, know, you say you can train a monkey to mix. And today's technology, it's easy for the mix. I mean, I taught my then who was my son, who was like ten at the time, how to mix. Yeah, well, on the CDJs. On the CDJs, yeah. yeah like, yeah. there's a sync button. Off you go. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you get people going, "Oh, but using the sync button is cheating." No, it's not. Again, yeah, you know I mean, it's like, yeah, yeah, I love vinyl. It's got a beautiful, warm sound, but technology's moved on. They, you know, sometimes they, the, the digital side of it allows you to be a lot more creative. Yeah. All the things that they, like, back in the old day, if we want to extend the record out, I'd have to buy two copies or three copies of it and keep uh, going yeah. back and forwards yeah. to extend it out, you know, to make it sound a bit better. Whereas now you can just loop all those things that I want to do. Think I remember going, you know, back years ago, thinking, oh, "I wish I could loop this longer. Well, one day I might be able to do it." No, but you can do it now. Yeah, like it's made DJs' lives easier, but also it allows if you've got some common sense to be creative with it. So when you're DJing now, like just say you've you've just played a gig in uh, north, just north of Byron. What sort of music are you playing? Like a mixture of new, old, and if just for for the like younger people that are listening or or anyone who's really interested, like what sort of newer music is really like um, floating your boat? There's still some 
great new house music coming out some great new techno coming out you know, I'm, I'm not too much of a of a classics dj i don't i don't want to go down that classics route yeah every now and again is nice yeah. but i think when people tend to get older they tend to want to look back on oh that's you know it, it, to reminisce and that's their way of reminiscing is by going to a classics night but you can only go to so many classics nights and there's only so many classics you can listen to yeah. there is still equally good house music out there at the moment um when i go to billy nudgel i play a combination yeah you know, mainly it's new music but i'll carefully select it i've got to listen to a track it's got to do something for me it's got to when i listen to it go yes that there's something in that yeah. that really grabs me and i can feel it it's just it's just like a sixth sense you develop as a dj i can feel it inside and go yeah that's got something in it and i know that it's going to work yeah you know, there's there's a lot of you know fillers out there now, if you can wade your way through all the fillers find the stuff that hits the nail then that is something that's hard these days because everything sounds so good when you first listen to it hey like you you're on beat for whatever you put that on, you go oh that sounds good download it listen to it a couple of times and you think that's not that good yeah there's so much more like at least when it was uh vinyl if something was pretty crap it wouldn't really get released would it yeah i mean there was a lot of yeah yeah with people anybody there. can just upload that stuff there yeah yeah so yeah but i also you know i i dig around in all the genres and people or track source or juno yeah i just don't look at the house channel i'll dig through because you'll always find a little gem in there yeah yeah in all the other genres yeah basically all you got to look at it as is like instead of having to go to the record shop the record shop's coming to you yeah and you just got to sit like yeah you'd go in the old days you go and spend like three four five six hours on a saturday friday and a saturday in the record shops and you know a couple of hours during the week if you can put that same amount of time into instead of just you know looking at other djs charts on track source or looking at it and go oh yeah i'll have a copy of that i'll have one of them i'll dig through go through all the genres because you might find a little gem in there that somebody's overlooked and missed and, and that's when you go yeah or it might have just been put in the wrong yes and that on. does happen quite yeah. a lot it's been put in the yeah. wrong category yeah, i found yeah. a few hidden little gems where searching through i've gone ah that shouldn't be in there but i'm glad it was because obviously if people haven't been digging around in that genre so who's some like <clears throat> some djs from today that you're into that you th that you think get it what you mean newer djs like yeah like you know the sort of the the, the newer guys that are coming out now I mean, there's so many, so many yeah. good European guys and that, but like, is there anyone that sort of stands out to you and you're like, man, that guy's a good DJ? Um, I have to be honest, I don't really listen to many other DJs. <laughs> I'll let them do what they do and I'll do what I do. Yeah. Oh, fair. Fair call. Especially if you're not, you, if, yeah. 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 I'll, yeah if I do go somewhere yeah. and the DJ's good, yeah, I'll go up and go, mate, that was fantastic. I'll always give them the props. You know what I mean? You go, yeah. Yeah, cool. Uh, days of being a fanboy a bit over now. I'm 61. <laughs> Mate, anyone you want to give a shout out to from back in the day? Uh, no, just to everybody that ever came to Full Circle in Queens. Thank you very much. You were the ones that made it. Uh, I made you dance, but you were the ones that created the atmosphere and you created the vibe. So to all of you, thank you. You're lucky. You're lucky, buggers. <laughs> People like me missed out on all that, but... Thanks heaps for coming on, Phil. It's been um, a really good chat. Maybe we should um, 
Part two. Do, do another one where you can really go into some uh, details on some of the old on the old times and that. But man, it's been great. And um, yeah, man, respect. Legendary DJ in the house, Phil Perry. Lovely. Thanks for having me, mate. Another great episode done. Uh, thank you very much, Phil, for coming over. Such a great guy with such a great story. Keep checking the What's the BPM Instagram page because um, Phil is going to let me know his top five tunes and his preferred BPM, so I'll be posting that on there. And stay locked into the channel. There'll be more episodes coming. I'm going to start knocking them out pretty regular from now on. So I'll catch you all later. Stay safe. Peace, love, unity, and respect. Thank <laughs> you.